Hi, I'm Valerie Loveless, and I'm just an everyday Latter-day Saint. I go to work, I have a family, I try to keep the commandments and get my scripture study in. I have a thirst for more gospel knowledge, but not always the time. If you're like me, then join me on my podcast, Everyday Saints. I'm going to take us into the topics that matter to you, pull them apart, listen to the experts and the authors, and keep you up to speed on what it is that Everyday Saints are talking about, reading, and listening to. Just search your podcast app for Everyday Saints and the Angel Moroni thumbnail. Welcome to this week's Doctrine and Covenants podcast. I am David J. Ridges, and today we will be discussing sections 109 and 110. In section 109, we see the dedicatory prayer for the Kirtland Temple. This section consists of the dedicatory prayer given on March 27, 1836. As you can see in the heading to the section 109 in your Doctrine and Covenants, the Prophet Joseph Smith confirmed that this prayer was given to him by revelation. At the end of December 1832 and on January 3rd, 1833, the saints in Kirtland were given what is now known as Section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants, in which they were commanded by the Lord to build a temple in Kirtland. By June of 1833, they still had not begun. Consequently, the Savior chastised them rather severely, as you can see in Doctrine and Covenants, Section 95, verses 2 to 3, and then said, Let the house be built. Four days later, they began digging foundation trenches and hauling stones for the temple construction. The temple was constructed at a cost estimated to be between $40,000 and $60,000 during a time of extreme poverty and hardship for the members of the church. Nevertheless, after almost three years, it was completed and ready for this dedicatory prayer on Sunday, March 27, 1836. Some people have wondered why the Lord would have the members go through such extreme hardship and sacrifice to build a temple that would soon be abandoned. In Doctrine and Covenants, section 64, verse 21, the saints were clearly told that Kirtland would be a stronghold of the church for only five years, and at the time of the dedication of the temple, about four and a half of the five years was up. Perhaps there's some important symbolism in this. When we stop to think about it, the temporary nature of the Kirtland Temple was not a problem at all in the eternal nature of things, just as the temporary nature of mortality is not a problem when viewed from the perspective of eternity. We come to mortality, accomplish its purposes by keeping the commandments if we so choose, and then leave having been better prepared for the highest blessings of eternity. So likewise, the saints built the Kirtland Temple, 
benefited beyond words from its eternal purposes and then left it, having been much better prepared for the future. It's interesting to note that the day of the dedication of the Kirtland Temple was Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday before Easter, on which many celebrate the Savior's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The Master's entry into Jerusalem was accomplished by the spreading of palm branches along his path. You read about that in John chapter 12, verse 13, and also in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> Thus the name Palm Sunday. In biblical culture, palm branches symbolize triumph and victory. We'll read a little bit about uh, the gathering of the saints for this dedicatory prayer now. Hundreds of people gathered early in the morning, hoping to get a seat in the temple for the services. The doors of the Kirtland Temple were opened at 8 a.m. About a thousand members were seated inside, but hundreds remained who could not get in. They were eventually seated in the schoolhouse, and the services were repeated for them the following Thursday. At 9 a.m., President Sidney Rigdon began the seven-hour-long services by reading Psalms 24 and 96. Then the choir sang. Sidney Rigdon offered an opening prayer. A hymn was sung. Sidney Rigdon spoke for two and a half hours. Joseph Smith was sustained as the prophet and seer of the church. The hymn, Now Let Us Rejoice, was sung. A 20-minute intermission followed. Services were resumed by singing Adam on Diamond. Joseph Smith spoke briefly. The First Presidency and the Twelve were then sustained as prophets, seers, and revelators, followed by the sustaining of other officers and leaders. The prophet Joseph Smith then prophesied to all that inasmuch as they would uphold these men in their several stations, alluding to the different quorums in the church, the Lord would bless them. Yea, in the name of Christ, the blessings of heaven should be theirs, and when the Lord's anointed go forth to proclaim the word, bearing testimony to this generation, if they receive it, they shall be blessed. By the way, you can guess that I'm quoting at this point, continuing the quote. But if not, the judgments of God would follow close upon them until that city or that house which rejects them shall be less desolate. That's a quote from the History of the Church, Volume 2, pages 418 and 419. A hymn was then sung. The dedicatory prayer was offered by the Prophet Joseph Smith, and we'll be reading that in sections and portions of that in section 109 in just a minute. Following the dedicatory prayer, the choir sang, The Spirit of God, 
composed especially for the occasion by W.W. Phelps. The prophet, quote, then asked the several quorums separately and then the congregation if they accepted the dedicatory, if they accepted the dedication prayer and acknowledged the house dedicated. The vote was unanimous in the affirmative in every instance, close quote, from History of the Church. The sacrament was then administered and passed to the congregation. Various testimonies were given, including the witness that several angels had been seen during the services thus far. Sidney Rigdon gave some closing remarks. Sidney Rigdon gave a closing prayer. The congregation stood and participated in the Hosanna shout. That's something that we do as we attend modern temple dedications. Thus, the first temple in this dispensation was dedicated. Of the final portion of the dedicatory service, Beginning with the administration of the sacrament, the prophet Joseph Smith recorded this, quote, The Lord's Supper was then administered. President Don Carlos Smith blessed the bread and the wine, which was distributed by several el elders to the church, after which I bore record of my mission and of the ministration of angels. Continuing the quote, <clears throat> President Don Carlos Smith also bore testimony of the truth of the work of the Lord in which we were engaged. President Oliver Cowdery testified of the truth of the Book of Mormon and of the work of the Lord in these last days. President Frederick G. Williams arose and testified that while President Rigdon was making his first prayer, an angel entered the window and took his seat between Father Smith, that would be Joe Smith's father, and himself, and remained there during the prayer. President David Whitmer also saw angels in the house. President Hiram Smith made some appropriate remarks congratulating those who had endured so many toils and privations to build the house. Close quote. They then did the Hosanna shout. We will now go to section 109. And there's so much in it. We'll just take a few minutes now to point out the blessings of temple attendance. There, I've counted at least 41 specific blessings of temple attendance in section 109 and so we'll take a few minutes and point out some of those first of all uh, the temple is a, in verse 5 near the end this is section 109 the temple is a place that the son of man might have a place to manifest himself to his people to me that includes personal revelation to each of us, especially when we go to the temple uh, seeking answers or help on a particular issue. Uh, 
So that was verse 5, near the end, if you're marking your scriptures, that the Son of Man might have a place to manifest himself to his people. In verse 8, we see that the temple is a house of prayer, or a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God. And to me, among several other things, the fact that the temple is a house of God means that, in effect, when we attend the temple, we are on a home visit. Because to me, the temple is a bubble of the celestial kingdom right here on earth. It's a place where heaven and earth meet by appointment. We can intentionally prepare ourselves to go to the temple to have a home visit where God is and angels are, where the Spirit of the Lord resides. To me, that's a very powerful blessing of temple attendance. Another one in verse 13, middle of the verse, that we may feel thy power. When we go to the temple, we put ourselves in a place where the Spirit of God is and where angels are and where we can feel that renewing power, get our batteries recharged, so to speak. Verse 14, <clears throat> several other blessings of the temple. Uh, line 3 in verse 14, that we may be taught the words of wisdom out of the best books and that we can seek learning even by study and also by faith. Uh, using faith as we study whatever, anything in the world, even the secular education, philosophy, and all of the things that can destroy testimonies, if we approach our study with faith and also by study, Faith will help us keep our balance and keep our testimony. Then verse 15, another set of blessings that they may grow up in thee and receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost. There's a huge blessing, full effectiveness of the gift of the Holy Ghost that we were given when we were confirmed after baptism. Let's uh, go to another few blessings of temple attendance. We'll go to verse 21. This to me is a very significant blessing of temple attendance. Let's see what it says. Verse 21. When thy people transgress any of them, that they may speedily repent and return unto thee and be restored to the blessings which thou hast ordained to be poured out upon those who shall reverence thee in thy house. That's a tremendous blessing. We can be forgiven, and we can speedily repent. That means it doesn't have to take a long time at all and have blessings poured out upon us. And then... Having had that happen to us in the temple, look at verse 22, line 2. That thy servants may go forth from the temple, armed with thy power, 
and that thy name may be upon them, and thy glory be round about them, and thine angels have charge over them. I had a friend who was not a member of the church at that time, but he was a youth minister in another church, another denomination. As he ended up in Utah on assignment from his church, he was fascinated with the Latter-day Saint people. And as he actually started investigating, he decided to go to the Jordan River Temple up in uh, South Salt Lake Valley area and just park in the parking lot and watch people when they came out of the temple. And he told me that he was looking for people uh, that weren't happy and that might help him not join the church by their appearance. But he spent a long time watching people come out, and he said there wasn't one person and especially he watched couples. There wasn't even one couple that did not glow and radiate something extremely special. And that reminds me of verse 22. I'm going to read it again. And go forth from this house armed with thy power, that thy name may be upon them, and thy glory be round about them. I think that's what he saw. By the way, that uh, clinched it for him, and he uh, finished his study of the gospel with the missionaries and was baptized, and uh, is very happy because of that great decision and great uh, change in his life. Uh, verse 25 is very helpful, that no weapon formed against them shall prosper. In other words, you can survive in this wicked world, and you can survive in wonderful shape, having been fortified by the Holy Ghost. And also, verse 26, another blessing of temple attendance, that no combination of wickedness shall have power to rise up and prevail over thy people. Uh, verse 28, here's why. Uh, starting at the end of line two, thou wilt fight for thy people. And end of the verse, the people will be delivered from the hands of all their enemies. And that can include bad habits and things we're trying to overcome in our own personal lives. Well, we're going to have to move on to section 110 here, but you get the gist. Uh, there are tremendous blessings that attend faithful worship in the temple and doing the work to redeem the dead. Now we'll go ahead and move to section 110 where about where one week later the Savior and Moses and Elias and Elijah appeared to the prophet Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. By the way, this was Easter Sunday 
April 3rd, 1836. And like I said already, it was just one week after the temple dedication. And the prophet recorded these visions in his journal, and it was later published as section 110. On that very special Sunday morning, about 1,000 saints had gathered to the temple to worship. Remember, by the way, that the Kirtland Temple was not like the temples we attend in our day to perform ordinance work for the living and the dead. Rather, the Kirtland Temple was more like a tabernacle or large meeting house where meetings and conferences were held. However, it served its function as a temple magnificently as these four visions took place in it. The Prophet Joseph Smith uh, gave this background, quote, Sunday, April 3rd, 1836, attended meeting in the Lord's house and assisted the other presidents of the church in seating the congregation and then became an attentive listener to the preaching from the stand, Thomas B. Marsh and David W. Patton. The scene, by the way, they were the senior members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, continuing with the quote from the prophet, spoke in the, af in the forenoon to an attentive audience of about 1,000 persons. In the afternoon, I assisted the other presidents in distributing the Lord's Supper, in other words, the sacrament, to the church, receiving it from the Twelve whose privilege it was to officiate at the sacred desk this day. After having performed this service to my brethren, I retired to the pulpit. The veils, meaning the canvas curtains that were used to divide the large meeting room into classrooms, now continuing with the quote, the veils being dropped and bowed myself <clears throat> with Oliver Cowdery in solemn and silent prayer. After rising from prayer, the following vision was open to both of us. That's the end of that quote. It's interesting to note, based on Doctrine and Covenants section 67, verse 11, and Moses chapter 1, verse 11, that in order to see the Savior while in a mortal body, a person would have to be transfigured, or in other words, quickened. In other words, changed temporarily by the Spirit of God to a higher spiritual state in order to not be destroyed in the flesh by the intense glory of God. So we understand from what we've just read that Joseph and Oliver were quickened during this vision of the Savior. By the way, the appearance of Christ on Easter Sunday, which is the yearly anniversary and celebration of his coming forth from the tomb, was certainly a very special reconfirmation of his literal resurrection. It's also of special significance that Elijah came to the Curtain Temple on April 3rd, 1836, as mentioned, which was Easter Sunday. As you may recall, the Jews celebrate Passover at this time of year 
during which we celebrate Easter. And these faithful Jews faithfully believe that Elijah will come as promised in Malachi chapter 4 by verses 5 and 6, and that he will come during Passover. Furthermore, as part of their Passover observance, a vacant, vacant seat is reserved for Elijah, and at a certain time during the services, the door is opened to invite him in, in the hope that this may be the year of his coming. By the way, you can read about that in the Bible Dictionary at the end of your Bible under Elijah. So Elijah did indeed come on Easter Sunday during the time that faithful Jews around the world were celebrating Passover. By the way, if you have Jewish friends, this can be a very strong bond between you and them to mention that we believe that Elijah would come uh, as they believe, but our happy news is that he did come already on April 3rd, 1836. Well, let's go right to the visions, the four visions in section 110. It's a fairly short vision, but as we said already, it was seven days after the dedication and the dedicatory prayer on the Curlin Temple. Again, reiterating, it was on Easter Sunday, the day when faithful Jews would be celebrating the Feast of the Passover throughout the world. And also, a brief reminder that of the five years that the Lord told the Kirtland saints that Kirtland would be a stronghold for five years, it has now been four and a half years. And Soon those five years will be up, but the temple, though temporary, temporarily of service to them, was of eternal significance, just like our temporary mortal lives are very definitely of eternal significance. So, in the first vision, verse 1, veil was taken from our minds, that's Joe Smith and Oliver Cowdery, and the eyes of our understanding were opened. That would be by the power of the Holy Ghost. In verses 2 and 3, next, we are given a description of the Savior, which includes a whole lot of biblical symbolism. Verse 2, we saw the Lord, that's Jesus Christ, Standing, on, standing upon the breastwork of the pulpit. By the way, the breastwork of the pulpit is the small wall that extends out from both sides, typically uh, in our chapels. The small wall that extends out from both sides of the pulpit. Continuing the verse, he was standing on the breastwork of the pulpit before us, and under his feet was a paved work of pure gold. By the way, gold in biblical symbolism is uh, represents the very best. It represents celestial 
celestial glory, it represents God in color like amber. And again, here in biblical symbolism, amber is representative or symbolic of divine glory. Going on with the description of the Savior, verse 3, his eyes were as a flame of fire. By the way, fire in this case would be symbolic of celestial glory. The hair of his head was white. And again, white is symbolic of purity and of celestial glory. Like pure snow. This would be, among other things, symbolic of the Savior's ability to compare, to cleanse us completely from sin. You could compare that with Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, where we are cleansed and completely free of sin because of the Savior's atonement after we repent. Going on with verse 3. His countenance shone above the brightness of the sun, and his voice was as the sound of the rushing of great waters, even the voice of Jehovah. And then he says, he introduces himself in verse 4, I am the first and the last. That means basically that Jesus Christ is involved in all things for our potential exaltation under the direction of the Father. So he's the first and the last. He was around at the very first in pre-mortal life when he was chosen and called to be our Savior, and he will be around at the very end at Judgment Day, where he, according to John 5 and 22, is our final judge. And it will be his atonement and his powerful cleansing atonement upon our sins that will render us, if we have been trying our best and succeeding in staying on the covenant path, it will be his atonement that makes us pure and clean so that we can have a pleasant judgment day, in fact. Then he goes on in verse 4, I am he who liveth. In other words, I'm resurrected. I am he who was slain. In other words, I am he who was crucified. This is quite an introduction from the Savior about he himself. I am your advocate with the Father. In other words, he is constantly working with us to save us and bring us home, and in fact, clear to exaltation. And then he says, verse 5, Behold, your sins are forgiven you. You are clean before me. There could be nothing more comforting given to these two brethren, Joseph and Oliver. And you and I can have the same blessing, literally, each Sunday as we partake of the sacrament if we are properly prepared. Verse 5 continued, therefore lift up your heads and rejoice. And verse 6, let the hearts of your brethren rejoice, and let the hearts of all my people rejoice, who have with their might built this house to my name. And then verse 7, most comforting words, for behold, I have accepted this house, and my name shall be here. 
and I will manifest myself to my people in mercy in this house. That's what he does in our temples for us too. And in verse 8, a wonderful promise, yea, I will appear unto my servants and speak unto them with mine own voice. If my people will keep my commandments and do not pollute this holy house, remember we have to have recommends to enter the temple. Some people can be too hard on themselves, and maybe that some people aren't hard enough on themselves. In order to not pollute the house and drive his spirit away, when we enter, we need to be worthy. We need to be trying. That does not mean we have to be perfect. Christ was the only perfect one to ever live on the earth. But we need to be honestly desiring to be righteous and keeping the basic fundamentals mentioned in the Temple Recommend uh, interviews. Verse 10, And the fame of this house shall spread to foreign lands. That's a marvelous prophecy, and indeed it has come true already. Now let's go to the second vision when Moses uh, appears. This is start. This will start in verse eleven. And imagine how Moses must have felt to be able to come and appear here to the Joseph and Oliver after all the work that he did during his mortal life. Verse eleven. After this vision closed, the heavens were again opened unto us, and Moses appeared before us and committed unto us the keys of the gathering of Israel. And notice what's next there, the gathering of Israel from the four parts of the earth and the leading of the ten tribes from the land of the north. That means that our first presidency today has the keys, as did every first presidency before them, has the keys of leading the ten tribes from the land of the north. We don't know when that'll happen, but it's an exciting prophecy yet future. Let's uh, go ahead and go on. Oh, let's uh, do something about the ten tribes here. I think we've got a, enough time to do it. Many people wonder and speculate as to where the lost tribes are. Joseph Fielding Smith gave the following advice on this matter, quote, Whether these tribes are in the north or not, I am not prepared to say, as I have said, as I said before, they are lost. And until the Lord wishes it, they will not be found. All I know about it is what the Lord has revealed. And he declares that they will come from the north. He has also made it very clear and definite that these lost people are separate and apart from the scattered Israelites now being gathered out. Now, the next vision is, starts in verse 12 when Elias appears to restore the keys and the blessings related to the Abrahamic covenant. We do not know who this Elias is. According to the Bible dictionary, uh, all we know is that he lived during the days of Abraham. 
and it will be interesting someday to meet him and find out more about his life and mission. So verse 12, after this, Elias appeared and committed the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham, saying that in us and our seed, all generations after us should be blessed. We'll just say a little bit more about the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham that we just read about in verse 12. The covenants that the Lord made with Abraham figure prominently in our lives too if we seek them and live worthy of them. The last phrase of verse 12 reminds us of Abraham chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, which is a summary of the blessings of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the responsibilities of all those who are part of that royal lineage. By the way, in our patriarchal blessings, we are told which of the tribes of Israel our blessings will come through, and inherent in that pronouncement in our patriarchal blessings is that if we strive to live worthy, we will inherit all of the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which include the wonderful end result of exaltation for us and living in the family unit forever and becoming gods and having spirit children and ultimately creating worlds for them to go to to gain the same blessings that we are gaining through uh, Father's plan of salvation. Let's go on to vision number four now, which is the vision when Elijah uh, appeared. We'll go to verse 13 for this. And after this vision had closed, another great and glorious vision burst upon us, for Elijah, the prophet who was taken to heaven without tasting death, by the way, that's in Second Kings chapter 2, verse 11, Elijah stood before us and said, verse 14, Behold, the time has fully come which was spoken of by the mouth of Malachi. You read that in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 to 6. Testifying that he, meaning Elijah, should be sent before the great and dreadful day of the Lord come. That's a reference to the second coming. In verse 15, we learn that a major function of the priesthood keys restored by Elijah was to get the work of family history and work for the dead going upon the earth before the second coming of Christ. Verse 15, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, lest the whole earth be smitten with a curse. In other words, if families are not sealed together in exaltation by the power of the priesthood, for time and all eternity, then a major purpose of the earth and its creation would not have been fulfilled. Joseph Fielding Smith explained the importance of family history, quote, What was the nature of this restoration? It was the conferring upon men in this dispensation of the sealing power of the priesthood, by which all things are bound in heaven as well as on earth. It gave the authority to Joseph Smith to perform in the temple of God 
all the ordinances essential to salvation for both the living and the dead. Then quote, <clears throat> continuing from Joseph Hilde Smith, through the power of this priesthood which Elijah bestowed, husband and wife may be sealed or married for eternity. <clears throat> Children may be sealed to their parents for eternity. Thus the family is made eternal and death does not separate the members. This is the great principle that will save the world from utter destruction. Now finishing up with verse 16. Therefore the keys of this dispensation are committed unto you into your hands, and by this ye may know that the great and dreadful day of the Lord, referring to the second coming, is near, even at the doors. Now in conclusion, marvelous manifestation, manifestations and revelations, including the restoration of vital priesthood keys, which took place on Easter Sunday, April 3rd, 1836, in the Kirtland Temple, continue to bless the lives of faithful saints throughout the world, as well as millions who have passed beyond the veil. The work of sealing families, living and dead, accelerates in our day, accompanied by the blessings of heaven and advances in technology. Is my witness and testimony that we are the beneficiaries, as are those beyond the veil who are waiting for us to get their work done. There is a marvelous spirit that attends all of this, and a testimony that swells deep within our souls as we participate in it. And I leave this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.